Welcome to Lavish Hope Season 3. I'm your host, Liz Testa. In this episode, we focus on solidarity with the AAPI community. That's the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. I'm honored to be joined by Jerry Yoshida, a third-generation Japanese-American, New York City-based actress and church leader who is passionate about dismantling racism in transformative, honest ways. Over the past two years, God has called her to courageously use her voice and family stories to engage Asians and non-Asians alike in deepening their understanding of the root issues and discovering opportunities for justice and healing. Jerry's story is compelling, heartbreaking, and hopeful, and you are sure to be illuminated and inspired. So let's jump in. All right. Well, welcome to the Lavish Hope Podcast. I'm Liz Testa. So delighted to be here today with my dear friend and sister in ministry, Jerry Yoshida. Welcome, Jerry. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Uh, I'm very excited about this opportunity to um, speak with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, it's really exciting. And so this podcast episode will air during May of 2022. And May is um, a month where we honor the AAPI community. So really um, grateful to you for being willing to come on by and share a bit of your stories of resilience and overcoming and lavish hope um, as they pertain particularly to this topic. So again, welcome, Jerry. Yeah, thank you. It's a real honor and privilege to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's jump right in. My first question I love to ask my guests is, what does resilience mean to you? Oh, well, um, (laughs) I prepared uh, kind of uh, an Asian uh, definition. And um, I've been told that uh, the Chinese character for crisis has two parts. And the top part is danger which makes a lot of sense. When, when we're in crisis, we feel threatened and attacked and uh, there is clear and present danger. But the, the second part underneath is uh, the word for opportunity. And I think that's what we often miss in a crisis uh, like COVID, that even though our whole world is falling apart, if we don't panic and run away or you know batten down the hatches and refuse to change, that very often in crisis, there is this opportunity for growth and change, transformation, new things to happen. And I I think that is my definition of resilience is, you know, taking uh, whatever life throws at you and to look for the opportunities, uh, the positive opportunities that God brings to us in every situation in our lives. I love that. That's incredible. And so, um, yeah, just thinking about crisis, danger, plus opportunity. Right. That's that's a great concept. Thanks for that. And so I wonder if you can share a little bit about how this definition, how it's been shaped by your past and maybe been changed or deepened by your experiences. Well, for the sake of your listeners, you know, uh, I'm Sansei. Uh, That means third generation Japanese American. And so uh, my grandparents came from Japan in the early 1900s. Both my parents were born and raised in California. And the most impactful event on their life uh, was 
you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor during World War II. And then President Roosevelt came out with Executive Order 9066 that uh, sent all the Japanese people living on the West Coast into internment camps. So that was my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, their friends, their, you know, um, I think if you had even one quarter Japanese blood, you had one parent or grandparent who was Japanese, you were sent off to camps. So I was born in 1950, which is after the war, but still, you know, the, the, the hatred and prejudice against Japanese was still alive and well when I, you know, started school and stuff like that. So I was subjected to, you know, a great deal of bullying and teasing and, um, you know, just from the earliest days, just feeling, well, I, I don't fit in. I, I don't belong. And, um, and my father was a minister. We moved around a lot. We, we never lived near other Japanese or Asian Americans at that time. I started school in Richmond, Virginia, and it was segregated in the 1950s. And my father was teaching at Virginia Union Universities, which is a historically black college. So, and we lived right across the street in an African-American community, but my, my parents sent me to an all white school on the other side of town. So it's just like, well, <laughs> I'm not black, I'm not white. And, and I, you know, I didn't really know who I was or where I fitted in. So um, it, it was really difficult for me to grow up. And, and um, I, I think I went to seven different schools. So it's like always being the new kid in school, always, yeah. <laughs> you know, having to try and make new friends, trying to fit in and figure out what is the cultural norm here? Because every school is different. And um, so, um, well, well, anyway, <laughs> I don't want to spend all the time talking about my history, but. Uh, it's important, though. Thank you, Jerry. It's really yeah, rich. To give some context. But I, I came to New York City in 1979 and I came here to pursue a career in acting. And um, so, yeah, and and because my, my father was a minister and he forced me to go to church, I, I went through a period of, you know, totally turning away from the church. I was the prodigal daughter. I was not interested in church and God, any of that stuff. And I think that's why I became an actor. because it was, it was it was kind of, you know, rejecting all this God stuff that was imposed on me when I was growing up. Um, but I, I did meet my my husband at Pan Asian Repertory Theater, and we were married for 40 years. And I have two uh, adult children. Uh, my son, Kentar, is 36 and my daughter is 31. And uh, but but I did come back to the church uh, right after my my son was born. And, um, you know, th then I slowly but surely, you know, got more and more active in the church and eventually uh, became active with the Reformed Church in America. So and that's my story in a nutshell. That's great. Yeah. And so your concept, right, this concept of resilience, I'm mm -hmm. just wondering how that kind of stayed with you or how did that support you as you were living into all of these different sort of stages of your life? Um, well, I, I guess one of the things that, that 
I've noticed, you know, I'm 71 years old, so I've got a pretty long history. And I think one thing I noticed about my life is that, you know, when I look at the negative experiences, you know, somehow, you know, God would turn it for good. You know, the Bible verse of, you know, God works all things for good. Maybe I didn't see it right away. Maybe it took a few years to to realize that, okay, I was working with a children's theater in Florida and that closed down. And then I, I got a job in a health club and I got fired from it. And it's like, oh, my whole world is falling apart. But then um, I got a call to come to New York City to take some acting classes. And it's like, well, I would probably would not have made that transition if, you know, God didn't totally shut a door in my face and for maybe I maybe I'd still be down there was warm and beautiful. But <laughs> but, be, be, but because uh, this kind of bad thing happened, uh, it motivated me to move to New York City in 1979 in the middle of winter from sunny Florida mm-hmm. <laughs> as you know one example of you know something good coming out of what looked like a bad situation at the time yeah that's really great I, I I'm grateful to hear that sort of how do you how do you continue to believe right that things are going to work out right yeah that's really great so so is there um another story that you could share about resilience and overcoming? Well, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, this being Asian Pacific Heritage Month, uh, you know, so much of my racial history seems very negative to me. It's something I'm very ashamed of. And, you know, I, I find it hard to share because it just brings back a lot of painful memories. But but I, I see how you know God is now using that to give me uh, a platform to share this with other people, uh, especially you know two years ago uh, when the coronavirus shut down everything. It, it, like right away, all, all this um, aggression uh, towards Asians started popping up. You know, people hear China virus or Kung flu. And, and they, they just immediately blamed anybody with an Asian face. That it's your fault. Uh, you must be contagious. You know, stay away from me and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that that's when, you know, y- you and your team came to me and said, Jerry, uh, you know, the RCA wants to speak out about uh, stop Asian hate. Would you please say something, record a video? And, and at first uh, I was kind of like, well, you know, what can I say? Um, but then I realized that this is an opportunity to use the experiences God gave me and, you know, to share it with other people. You know, first of all, hopefully to encourage other Asians to speak up and uh, and then also to help non-Asian people to understand who we are. Because I think so often we as Asians, you, you know, we're, we're very quiet and respectful. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or get them upset. So we, we just don't say anything a lot of times. And I think that's where a lot of misunderstandings arise because they don't just, they don't know. So they assume a lot of things about us that may or may not be true. And it's not until we are willing to open up and share honestly about what we're feeling and experiencing, will they you know begin to understand 
uh, what, what we're feeling, you know. I so appreciate that, Jerry, because, you know, having been, I mean, that was two years ago when, when we started this journey together. And I, I'm so grateful. I call it, it's a term I like to call myth busting. But, mm. you know, when you kind of came forward and said, you know, we've got to break through this barrier of, um, you know, there's the myth of the model minority, there's all these things um, uh, of uh, sort of things that have been imposed on the Asian community. And that just had to, it just has to be deconstructed, right? It just, it has to be dismantled. So um, I'm just wondering, like, for the sake of our audiences that have not been journeying with us for the last two years, if you could maybe just say a little bit about what that process was like for you, especially in those early days when you really felt that call um, to be able to start to exercise, you know, courage and bravery and openness and share your story more. Um, can you just share a little bit about like what what actually happened there, like how what that process was? Well, it, it, it's kind of like well, it, it's almost like public therapy. You know, when I share <laughs> my story, uh, I, I mean, it's difficult at first. You, you know, to find the words to express something that that I've, I've hidden for such a long time because I feel so much shame. And, you know, for your listeners to understand that shame is a very big thing in Japanese and Asian cultures. There's honor and then there's shame. And that the shame really controls so much of my, my behavior and that that creates a lot of fear in speaking out. But I, I've really been learning this past two years that when I when I do speak out and, and other people, you, you know, they nod their heads, they, they understand, they get it. And then I then I feel validated. Then that kind of strengthens me and gives me emboldens me to to take the next step and to continue with it. And and it actually has become a you know a process of uh, of healing and wholeness for me. That now it's like you know I can really come forth and be honest. And and going back to this whole acting thing, it's like I think. One of the reasons I, I chose to be an actor was because, you know, I, I've been acting since I was like four or five years old. I've been acting a certain way to fit in, in order to be accepted, in order not to get beat up. You, you know, I had to perform in a certain way, which meant hiding a lot of my real feelings and personality because, I thought, oh, this is not going to be acceptable. If they really knew what I'm thinking and feeling, they would hate me. So, uh you know, to begin in this time in my life to take off the mask, to be more honest and vulnerable um, is really freeing. It, it's terribly scary, but uh, as I do it more and more, I, I just feel, um, you know, like I said, it's very much a, a process of, of, of healing and reconciliation for me. That's so profound. I just, I can just imagine that. That our listeners are going to be so encouraged to hear that because I think that is one of the things that's, you know, there's we we love uh, Dr. Benet Brown's teaching on all of this, right? How to be authentic and vulnerable and this whole notion of shame and how damaging it is. And I think it's really it's really helpful for for us to be non Asians to be hearing a little bit about how that plays a role in your culture of origin, right? In the Asian culture, and and so I really thank you for honoring us with that, sharing about that. I'm wondering
wondering, Jerry, if you can share a little bit about, you've alluded to it, but just dig in a little bit more into, like, where do you find resilience when you don't have it? Hmm. This is like the $50 million question, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, here, I think I'd like to share the story that um, uh, when my father was driving me to my freshman year at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, he, he said to me, he said, Jerry, um, don't be afraid to ask for help. There's no shame in asking for help. In fact, it takes great courage to ask for help. And I feel like this was really profound coming from my dad, who was Nisa. He was second generation. And, you know, because there is so much shame about asking for help in the Japanese culture. That means you're, you're weak. That means you're a failure. If you're asking for help, you, you can't handle your own problems. So I think a lot of times Japanese and Asian people do not ask for help. And it is a point of pride and stuff like that. But um, it, it's really hard for us to say, I can't do this by myself. And but 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 because my father said that, and I really respect my my dad. And you know, anytime I've gotten to a point in my life where you know I just couldn't go on, you know, I would go and talk to a minister. I would go to a counselor, a therapist. I would join a support group, or you know, I would look for something that would would help me instead of saying instead of giving up or you know, trying to soldier on by myself, but just realizing that um, I needed other people and that, you know, God shows up through other people that you allow into your life. That's really good. You know, I'm just thinking, it's just occurring to me, you know, we often, in, in, in the Christian world, when we're doing this kind of process of trying to figure out how to live more holistically, right, and be healed, um, we think often about Western society being so independent and so individualistic, and you kind of got to make it on your own. And it's so interesting to hear that there's this kind of parallel in the Asian culture as well, even though the Asian culture appears to someone like myself, who's non-Asian, as being very communally based, um, that it matters, right? The family matters, the community matters. You want to, the honor, right? Of uh, your, if you do something, you never act uh, on your own, right? The, the whole family will be impacted by your actions. That's a very global um, perspective on what it means to be part of a family that it, in the Western culture we don't have as much. But I just, I see that parallel. So I could imagine part of the challenge for you living in the United States, right? And trying to assimilate as best you can then that piece of you got to make it on your own, that that might be mixed in there a little bit. Um, right. Where, where those two those two cultural norms actually connect very well together, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking of, you know, the impact of family and community, you know, within the Japanese culture, there's this saying that, you know, the nail that sticks up gets pounded down. And, and it's like, you, you you don't want to be different from everybody around you. And if you speak up and, uh, you know, you might make a fool of yourself and then everybody's going to jump on you and make, try to make you conform uh, to the social norm of your family or your social group or whatever. And that, that's very strong in me. And, and again, that, that's why it's sometimes very difficult for me to speak up. It's like, well, what gives me the right to say anything, you know, or, uh, you know, people might not approve of me if I say what I really think and feel. 
Um, so, so you know, that, that to me is kind of countercultural. Where to me, it's like I see Americans as like, oh, you know, they're very happy to stand up and talk about themselves and brag and all the kind of stuff. But I, I don't feel right doing that because that, that's not how I was brought up, you know. Yeah. Very interesting. I think, too, there's also the piece of, um, you know, as being women, right, there's also then gender also can can play into this a little bit where women that are too loud or who are, you know, speak up about themselves can be seen as, you know, too much. And then also like the women that are quiet and demure are rewarded for that. So right. you might have a little there, I think I think you've got several. I'm just seeing some different places where you might have kind of double indemnity um, of sort of like a double layer. So it's even more um, just overcoming like that sense of overcoming. It's even more so because there's even more there that you have to kind of override in order to be able to break free and be able to live fully into what God is calling you to do and what God is calling you to share. So. Um, right. I just wanted to say thank you for being faithful to that <laughs> exercise of seeking that healing that will release you and give you that freedom. Because right. what you, even just what you've shared in these few short minutes of this conversation, I'm sure are going to be so illuminating and enlightening and helpful to our listeners. So thank you for that. Um, right. So I'm wondering, Jerry, where is a place that you find hope? Paradoxically, where I find hope has been in, in surrender that so often when I've gotten to the pit of despair, it's like it's been in a moment of surrender that God has been able to come in and, and, and help me. And and often it's not that he changes the outward circumstances, but, you know, inwardly, I, I have I, I, get, I gain a different perspective uh, you know um and then that and that's where I, I i found i found help uh, hope and help because like again it's, it's like because I, I, you know as a japanese person i'm always trying to save face and uh, but it's like when, when i've you know totally surrendered then you know god is allowed to come in and transform my life so it's it's kind of paradoxical that when I finally give up that, you know, that, that allows the Holy Spirit to come in and start working and, and moving and changing things for me. So, um, yeah, that it doesn't sound like it makes sense logically, but, but I feel somehow surrender, uh, you know, gives me hope. That's beautiful. And I think that's, that's such a, um, it's such a, a personal interpretation of where we find hope, right? It's not looking externally. It's just in that intimate relationship and in the, the relationship with God. And so that's something that we can do anywhere, anytime. So I, I find that very inspiring. Thank right. You. Yeah, right. that's great. So you've already alluded to the Romans 8 and 28. Um, that all things work together for good. Uh, and But I'm wondering if you have any other favorite verses or quotes that inspire you to embrace hope and be resilient. You know, Joseph's story resonates me, with me a lot. That, you know, he went through a lot of awful experiences. And, and at the end, he was able to say, what others meant for evil, God means for good. And, and I, I found that true, too, because like when you're subjected to a lot of racism and stuff like that you know 
it seems like for no reason at all, pe- people hate you and beat up on you. But, you know, ultimately, God, God means that to be for good. And it's like, okay, now I'm able to share those experiences. Uh, hopefully, it brings some kind of comfort and encouragement to other people. Um, it certainly did not feel good at the time, but it, it's like, uh, and it's helped me become more, you know, reliant on God to, you know, lead me and guide me and save me. Um in a way that maybe I would not have appreciated otherwise. And, um, you know, actually, uh, last month, uh, Reverend N. Young Kim, you know, she's the coordinator for the Council for Pacific and Asian American Ministries. And she comes at the last minute, you know, Jerry, you know, please write, um, you know, that they, they want to come up with this devotional uh, for dismantling racism for May. And uh, it's based on the Lord's Prayer. And they gave us this Bible verse. Um, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it's like, oh, wow. You, you know, all my life I've been trespassed against. And yet I am called to forgive those people uh, who, who trample all over me. And um, and, and I shared the story that um, uh, after 9-11 happened, you know, Third Reformed Church in Orange City, Iowa, sent work teams to our church to help re- repair things. Mm-hmm. And then they invited some of us to go to Orange City, Iowa, to thank them and share their our story. And, um, you know, and I did talk about, you know, the internment camps and stuff like that. And afterwards, we had a little receiving line and we're shaking hands with people. And along comes this older um Anglo white American. And, and when he shakes my hand, he said something like, I am so very sorry for what happened to your family during World War II. I was an American soldier at that time. And, and it, it, it kind of shocked me because it was, it was kind of like, all of a sudden it's like, I could see him I'm, as a, a young man getting ready to go off to war. Maybe he's never left Iowa in his whole life. And I realized, you know, all these all these years, you know, I, I've been harboring hatred and resentment against these white Americans who were bad to us. But I realized that it wasn't his fault. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, war is hell and it's awful for everybody, no matter which side you're on. And I just felt convicted in that moment that I have to forgive the people who hurt me. It doesn't seem to make sense, but I realized that the the bitterness and hatred and the hardness of heart that I was holding against, you know, white Americans was something that I needed to release and let go of. And to me, that was like really profound because I was always thinking, you know, poor me, you know, Uh, but, you know, God just pointed out to me that I had to let that go. I had to forgive the other person. And uh, that was profoundly changing for me. I mean, it just released me from this kind of burden I've been carrying all these years of, you know, us versus them and, and, and um, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, I still need and want to speak out against racism, but that core of forgiveness, I think, really needs to be there. Um, yeah. That is 
so important, Jerry. I'm, I'm, thank you for elevating that because they, they often say, you know, forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself, right? So right. it's, it's the one who does the forgiving that is, is really blessed by it because of that freedom that you find. Yeah. But I'm, I, I really appreciate you naming that as it pertains to the harm that was done to your family. Um, yeah. Because that's still, it can't take that away, right? I mean, like, that's still a really important part of U.S. history. And I'm, I'm wondering if, um, if you would be willing just to give a little snapshot of what happened to your family, um, just for our listeners that may not have, have know about the history of what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II. Would you be willing to just give maybe just a little quick overview? You, you named it a little bit in your introduction, but just, a little little snapshot uh, about the camp. Well, I, I think they were only given a few weeks. You, you know, they posted up this notice notices in Japantown or whatever, and it's like you've you've only got a few weeks to pack all your belongings. I think they were only allowed to bring like two suitcases, mm-hmm. and like my one grandfather had three Japanese gift stores. You, you know, and it's like within. Two or three weeks, he's got to close this down. Um, and this was in California, right? Was this in San yeah, Francisco or Sacramento? Uh, it was in San, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So he, he's got to close down his businesses. Uh, people had to sell or give away things. You know, they, they basically lost everything. And uh, the injustice, besides being mass incarceration, I mean, there's no trial. Nothing is ever proven. It's just this wave of you know, racial hatred that's moving all the Japanese out to these, well, first they went to the Tanfran racetrack, you know, like horse stalls that they're being housed at temporarily until they quickly build these uh, barracks out in, you know, godforsaken parts of the country, you know, out, out in the desert or up in the mountains where they're far away from from people and they're surrounded with barbed wire, there's guard towers uh, with soldiers there with the guns pointed in at the Japanese Americans. It's not that they're, they're being protected from the outside people. And so that, you know, they basically lost everything. And, um, and I think over half of them were American born citizens. And my grandparents were not allowed to be citizens. At that time, legally, there was no way that uh, an Asian person could become an American citizen. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, they're enemy aliens, but they, they had no choice. They, they couldn't become Americans even if they wanted to. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're in, in these house, in these barracks in the middle of nowhere. Um, my, my father was able to get out after six months. Uh, the Quakers uh, helped him and other college age students get out and go to colleges away from the West Coast. Um, but my one one aunt was fairly young when she went in. So I, I think she was there for the duration of the war. And as were many of the older Japanese, because, you know, they had no place to go. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after the war ended then? Uh well, after the war, some of my relatives went back to California and like my, my father, some people just did not want to go back to California. It's just, it just felt so still dangerous and, and people were, were still not 
welcoming for the most part. So we ended up in Chicago first and other parts of the country when I was growing up. So it's, it's kind of like the great <laughs> dispersion or whatever that, and that is in fact, when, you know, a lot of people came from the camps, a lot went to Chicago and, and many came to New York and that's how my church got founded. Well, the church, my, my church was already there, but it kind of grew in size because a lot of Japanese Americans from the camps came towards the East Coast. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. And I think I, I, I wanted our listeners to hear some of that because then when they hear what, you know, they think about what you what you articulated about that need to forgive, like that's a pretty profound story of of of, of what needs to be of, of unforgivableness. <laughs> Let me say that. Right. So right. thanks. Thanks for that. So just shifting gears a little bit, Jerry, I'm wondering how are you cultivating hope? today? <laughs> um, well, well I, I think, you know, God has given me several opportunities in this past two, two and a half years to speak out on this issue of Asian American racism and stuff. And, and, and that, that has given me, a, you know, a great deal of hope and meaning and direction in my life at this time. Um, and again, this is where, you know, I think God prepared me, you know, because, you know, you know, I started out as an actress and that has given me the skills and confidence to speak in front of groups because when I was growing up in school, I was very shy and very quiet. And, uh, but, but because, you know, now I'm an actor, so I can feel comfortable talking in front of um, groups of people. And I think that's been a real you know, blessing for me. And um, yeah, and I think just the more I, I share the story and as I listen to other people's stories, I, I think that gives me hope and resilience because uh, there's a great deal of value for me to hear how other people have dealt with this same or similar situation that uh, you know, they, they respond in different ways. They come up with ideas that I hadn't thought about. And then that, that, that you know, uh, increases my ability for hope and resilience. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, can you give like an example or two of like, what are some of the things that you've heard uh, from others that have been inspiring in that area and that have kind of helped you as you're catalyzing? Because it's clear, Jerry, that God is kind of catalyzing you forward to continue to develop and share your story, your family's story, and really um, help people and systems think about how do we dismantle racism in all its forms, right? In systems of oppression, but particularly to dismantle some of these untruths, some of these misconceptions around uh, our Asian brothers and sisters and, and, and Asian American brothers and sisters, especially I'm talking about the U S context mostly, but, um, but I'm just wondering like some of the things that you're hearing that have been particularly inspiring to you. Well, um, well, one thing I've been hearing about, uh, you know, some Japanese Americans, because of what happened with the internment camps, you know, some of them have uh, really kind of organized together to speak out against, uh, you know, the injustice of these immigration issues of families 
being deterred, detained at the border or children being separated from their parents. So, um, I, you know, I do know some Japanese Americans who have gone down there to protest, to show their support and solidarity. And it's like, you know, never again. I mean, this happened uh, with the Japanese Americans, this mass incarceration, and we don't want to see this happen to other people groups uh, who are being discriminated against today. So so something like that, you, you know, really in, inspires and encourages me that uh, that there that there is hope and that when we work together, we, we can accomplish meaningful change for our society. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so inspiring. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So as we're finishing up, Jerry, I'm wondering if you have a project or anything at all that you're working on that you'd like to share or that's part of your story with our with our listeners. <laughs> Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, it occurs to me that tomorrow I'm participating in the dismantling racism um, prayer gathering, and uh, I, I'm really, you know, looking forward to that uh, because one aspect they they asked me to speak out on is you know the relationship between Asians and African Americans, and there are times when we do support each other, you know, during the civil rights era, um, many. Asians, um, you know, stood in solidarity with the African-Americans because like, yes, we understand this systemic racism that's pushing us all down and and they partnered together. And uh, uh, um, well, in fact, my my father, when we were in Richmond, he he was teaching at Virginia Union University and he was at the seminary there. And he said he met Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King because uh, Dr. King would come to the seminary to talk to the African-American students and uh, professors, and my father had an opportunity to meet him. And then fast forward, uh, 1968, when King was assassinated, at that time, my father's teaching at an all-white seminary in Siwanee, Tennessee. Um, But he and some of the seminary professors and students went to Memphis uh, from Siwanee to kind of protest and to stand in solidarity with those people. So it's like, you know, my life personally has intersected with uh, the African-Americans. But 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 also, I mean, there, there are times when, you know, there's friction between Asians and Africans, African-Americans. And um, so so, I mean, this is something that that really interests me, that uh, you know, my people group is not free from prejudice and racism, too. And that, you know, if we're going to dismantle racism, it has to happen inside of each one of us. We can't just be saying, oh, you know, you're a bad person, you're a racist. But if we don't recognize that racism crops up within us, too, with our assumptions and the way that we relate to people, then, you know, we're not being totally honest. And, you know, real change can't happen until you, you know, we look inside ourselves too. And, you know. So that sounds like God is calling you into kind of the next iteration or kind of the evolving mm-hmm. uh, of this work that you're doing is that now you're going to, you know, you're being called to engage in a different, you know, a different aspect of it, which I, I so appreciate. And it's so fascinating to me. You know, I didn't know that piece about your story 
of where your dad taught or that kind of intersection with um, civil rights. And so I see that also as part of God's plan, right? As you're living into this calling that you do have some of that in your background, um, your life experience, your family's life experience. So that's exciting, Jerry. And so um, unfortunately, when this podcast airs, you will have already engaged in the first part of that Dismantling Racism prayer gathering, but I believe it will be in time. So folks that are listening, um, when this podcast first drops, will be able to come back for the second time uh, later in the month. And so I'll make sure that I've got that in my uh, my follow-up comments, just of how they can tune in to engage with you and with the Dismantling Racism prayer movement. And then Jerry, I know also there's recordings of different things that you've done. So um, I just am going to make sure that uh, that people have that access uh, to be able to listen a little bit more to the things that you have already shared and glean your wisdom and your um, expertise from your life experiences. So um, also, Jerry, that if folks want to connect with you, if they have questions or if they just need a resource, um, you're willing to share your email address, right? Can can I just go ahead and share that with folks that it's jerry.yoshida at gmail, right? That's the one that you prefer? Yes, yes, that's fine. And, and I, I would also add, like I said, I, I enjoy giving presentations. So if there is a group that wants me to, to speak and share my story or to kind of lead a workshop, um, one of the things I was able to do with uh, Reverend Grace Rohr, who's on your uh, guiding coalition, she invited me twice to speak to her uh, at her Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in New Jersey. And th- that was a, a really wonderful experience to talk to a, a different Asian American group and share my story and listen to their story, too. I, I learned so much. And so um, I, I really you know, enjoy interacting with the, you know, different uh, church groups or community groups. And, and I would, you know, welcome that. And, you know, also being able to do that via Zoom or virtually, uh, since traveling still is a little difficult. So uh, that, that's an option. So yes, but that, that is my email and I'm happy to share that. Wonderful, Terry. That's great. And I know I've heard wonderful things from people that have been able to be in your story sharing uh, workshops. So I'm so glad you brought that forth as an opportunity for our listeners. If they have a group that would like to avail themselves of that, I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Thank you for sharing that. So Jerry, thank you for being here on the Lavish Hope podcast today. Is there any final thing that you've left unsaid that you would like to say before we sign off? Well, uh, just just thank you so much, Liz, for inviting me. I've really enjoyed this conversation and, uh, you know, many blessings to you in your ministry as you continue to, you know, invite people to share their stories of hope and resilience. I think we're all strengthened by it. Oh, thanks so much, Jerry. And God bless you as you continue to share your story and encourage others to really engage in this matter of dismantling racism and particularly where it pertains to Asian Americans and also to learn the history. It's Mm. so important. So thank you so much for being with us today. All the best to you. God bless. Okay. Thank you. God bless you too.
Thanks so much for listening. I hope this episode has offered insights and sparked ideas for what lavish hope, resilience, and overcoming mean for you in your own life and calling. If you'd like to connect with Jerry, she'd love to hear from you. You can email her directly at jerry.yoshida at gmail.com. That's G-E-R-R-I dot Y-O-S-H-I-D-A at gmail.com. You can also learn more about dismantling racism resources that Jerry is a part of, including standing with the AAPI community and the Dismantling Racism Prayer Gathering at www.rca.org front slash dismantling dash racism. That's rca.org front slash dismantling dash racism. If you enjoyed this Lavish Hope podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and reshare any place you're on social. You can also connect with me directly at ltesta at rca.org. This episode is brought to you by faithword.org, an online learning community where you'll find ideas for living out your faith, reflections on scripture and church, stories about how other Christians are following God's call, and resources to bring your own church or organization along for the ride. The Lavish Hope Podcast is produced by Anna Radcliffe with assistant production by Lorraine Parker. Sound designed by Garrett Steyer and web support by Grace Reuter. Hosted by yours truly, Liz Testa. Until next time, may you find ways to cultivate lavish hope, build resilience, and seek justice each and every day. God bless you. Thank you.